welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast is a summary podcast of the TALC Skills for Effective Information Gathering module. This module explores the skills that clinicians need to gather information effectively and efficiently so that they can use that information for accurate diagnosis and again when they come to explain things and plan care with their patients. There's a chapter called How Can Avoiding Questions Yield More Information, which is about how asking questions can take up too much brain time. There are more low effort ways to get the information you really need. This is followed by three chapters about powerful listening. Simple Steps to Powerful Listening number one explores how we can use storytelling to improve our attention and memory and explores the components of effective listening and how not to miss important information. Simple Steps to Powerful Listening 2 looks at how we can use a video stop-start technique to help us hear in three dimensions, because when we become aware of all the information available, we can really bring the patient's story to life. Simple Steps to Powerful Listening 3 covers, can you spot the skills that the clinician is using? This will increase your knowledge of consultation skills, turn your unknown unknowns into known unknowns and speed up your learning from experienced practitioners. Further chapters cover Can Reading Between the Lines Make for More Accurate Diagnosis, which explores what is a cue or a clue and proposes some time-saving strategies for using clues and cues effectively. What difference does a patient's thoughts, concerns and hopes really make in the consultation? This final chapter looks at nuances and the power of open-directed questions in understanding the patient's own perspective. This means obtaining the information that helps us to make management plans that really work. We can save time by getting to the key issues for the patient straight away. These chapters are all covered in short mini podcasts of about 10 to 15 minutes. But if you've got longer, they're all blended together here to make one long programme. How can avoiding questions yield more information? Famously, Balint commented, if you ask questions, you only get answers. And I've often pondered about the meaning of this and why it might be better not to ask questions. But what does not asking questions really mean? There's a lot of emphasis in consultation skills training on the difference between open and closed questions and the importance of using open questions to gather information. While this is an important distinction, what is something of which is often overlooked, is that effective information gathering can happen with hardly any questions being asked at all. The open to closed cone idea is often used to illustrate the idea that gathering information begins with open questions and ends with closed questions, a bit like an ice cream cone being open at the top and closed at the bottom. The closed questions lower down are thought to be there to fill in the details. Trying to decide what questions to ask can sometimes totally preoccupy less skilled clinicians to the extent that they can fail to listen to what's being said at the time by the patient. One way to overcome this problem is if clinicians can learn to start gathering information without using questions at all. This might seem strange, but when the listener uses encouraging phrases and reflections, paraphrases and echoes, in other words, active listening skills, instead of questions, the speaker becomes empowered to convey information quickly and fully. Closed questions only tend to reveal this richness after a lot of laborious effort and may never actually reveal what the patient is really bothered about. The clinician can learn to delay asking questions until the patient has run out of things to say spontaneously. And there are two key skills here, encouraging the patient to carry on speaking and the active listening skills. Encouraging the patient to carry on speaking is relatively easy, and I think it's helpful to think of the two words, go on, as the most powerful words in the consultation. It has many variants, like tell me more, keep going, I'm wondering if there might be a bit more you want to say about this. These simple phrases, like go on, free up the clinician's mind to listen instead of planning the next question. This is very relaxing, and as I'm going to show later in this podcast, can yield vastly more amounts of useful information. 
The active listening skills of reflecting back, encouraging and echoing can also be used as low effort ways to gather information. This approach helps the clinician to focus on what the patient is really saying and makes it clear that the listener really is understanding and attending to the speaker properly. Attention leads to better retention and memory and helps the clinician to retain all the information they've heard so that it can be used later on in the discussion. There are specific experiential ways to learn this by comparing a questioning to a non-questioning style so that the benefits of avoiding questions can be directly experienced. And that means learners are more motivated to use this approach themselves. Clearly, there's a vital place for carefully chosen questions during the consultation. But if information is gathered in a calm, efficient and non-questioning way first, the clinician will usually only need to ask a few clarifying questions at the end. The open to closed cone is very narrow at the bottom. Why do clinicians ask a lot of direct questions, though, if it's not very effective? I'm wondering that some clinicians who ask a lot of direct questions are perhaps trying to control the consultation. This may be because they feel it's the only way to stop the patient talking too much and taking up too much time. Clinicians also sometimes worry that they will uncover difficult problems that they'll not know how to deal with. They may be uneasy with the emotional content of consultations and think that closed questions will kind of keep it to the facts. However, research persistently shows that very few patients keep on talking indefinitely. Uninterrupted, the median talking time at the start of consultations is about 59 seconds. And avoiding interruptions and avoiding too many closed questions is the approach which is adopted by experienced general practitioners whose consultations are effective and often shorter than those of inexperienced practitioners. Some clinicians may be worried that they'll forget all the information if the patient talks a lot. Clinicians can devise appropriate strategies for managing this, perhaps a very brief paper and pencil note, but it is important to avoid typing during the conversation because it breaks eye contact and reduces the efficiency of the listening. The effective use of summarising skills can also help clinicians to remember all the salient points. And if you go to the module Talc Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning Care, there's a chapter called Why are Effective Summarising Skills the Engine of the Consultation, which will help you to learn more about effective summarising. Effective summarising after careful listening can also assist in good clinical reasoning, which makes it easier to develop a shared management plan and also makes the consultation safer and error less likely. Now, thinking about some examples of this, how to delay asking questions until the patient has run out of things to say, I'm going to give an example of how we can encourage people to talk more and perhaps get more information. Now, let's consider if I'm going to ask you about a subject which you can easily speak about, for example, your most recent holiday. And of course, patients know a lot about themselves. And so if they're encouraged, they can talk easily about themselves. If I wanted to know about your most recent holiday, I could ask quite a lot of close questions like this. When did you last go on holiday? Where did you go? Did you fly? Where did you stay? Who travelled with you? Was it sunny? Now, these are important aspects of your holiday, perhaps, but most of them can be answered with very few or even one word. And in this situation, the questioner is speaking more than the interviewee. But in a medical consultation of any kind, we nearly always want to hear from our patients more than we want to talk ourselves. Let's have a different way of asking you about your holiday. How about if I say, I'd really like to hear all about your most recent trip? When you pause, I could just say, go on. Oh, tell me more. Oh, that sounds good. Hmm. I'm thinking there must be more to say about Tenerife. If we think about this, I've probably only said 10 or 20 words. It's very likely that the person describing their holiday will have said very much more than that. And I will have gleaned much more information from them. On the other hand, how much effort was required on my part to say go on rather than trying to work out what question to ask next? It's a lot easier to say go on and encourage people than it is to constantly be thinking about what the next question should be. It's much easier to remember the information you hear if you're not planning the next question because your mind is free to listen. I used a little bit of reflecting back at the end of that intervention and paraphrasing a few words that the speaker has been saying can often be a very good way of encouraging them to say a bit more and a bit more relevant things. 
Apparently, this is what the Queen does when she meets people at formal occasions. If you repeat a few keywords, it can be even more effective. Here is an example. My current problem is my cellar keeps flooding in weather we're having. I'm getting fed up of having to clean it all out. Now, instead of asking questions, the listener can say, go on, two easy but powerful words. Wow, various builders and plumbers have come to look at it, but they can't seem to find out what the problem is. Everything down there is getting all damp and horrible. Let's try reflecting back. All damp and horrible? Yeah, I used to saw my, my luggage and camping gear down there, but it's getting too wet now. An encouraging statement. Well, tell me more. I've had to move everything to the attic. I even had to throw a lot of things away because they were all rotten and smelly. So now I'm looking for a proper damp-proof specialist to see if they can sort it out. A specialist? That's an example of reflecting back again. That exchange demonstrates the idea clearly. Encouraging is low effort, but has yielded a lot of information about the problem, including what has already been tried, what the main concerns are, and what thoughts the speaker has about the next steps. That saves me having to ask their ideas, concerns, expectations, doesn't it? I only had to say about 10 words, which were low effort, encouraging phrases for the most part. When I'm not spending time planning my next question, my brain power is really released for listening, understanding and remembering what is said. Simple steps to powerful listening. Part one, storytelling for attention and to improve your memory. It's quite common nowadays for clinicians learning about consultation skills to murmur statements about the golden minute and not interrupting patients at the start of consultations. Yet when experienced clinicians observe those in training, it's all too common to notice two related phenomena. Firstly, that the patient is faced with many closed questions. And secondly, that information that the patient had already given is asked for again, sometimes repeatedly. This might be because the clinician did not hear the information the first time, has forgotten it, or maybe didn't appreciate its importance. These failures of accurate listening may mean that the clinician misses important clues or cues about the problem. Before anyone can understand, interpret or respond to a communication, it's vital to actually hear it and remember it. This includes remembering exact words or phrases because these are often full of significance. For example, my horrible boss said has quite a different meaning to somebody saying my lovely boss said and even to my actual boss said which means something else again. Attentive listening and remembering can yield very important clinical information too. Let's compare these two statements. The knee pain means I cannot even cycle now. With another statement, the knee pain means I can only cycle 40 or 50 miles now. And the knee pain only comes on when I cycle up a very steep hill. There is clinically useful information in each of those statements, which can easily be lost if the clinician is very busy thinking about what question to ask next or forgets what had been said because they're not paying really close attention. Remembering exactly what is said requires attentive listening, undisturbed by inner thoughts of what question to ask next. The clinician also requires a trained short-term memory to retain what has been said so that that can inform later parts of the consultation. Both of these are actually learnable skills. And in this chapter, I'm going to describe a memory training exercise to highlight these skills so that they can be applied and practiced in consultations regularly. I think it's useful to do this exercise collaboratively. It's actually more fun if you do it in a group, but you can actually do it one to one as well. This exercise is part of a context of the whole process of listening, which includes several stages. First, you have to develop rapport. Then you have to hear what somebody says. You have to understand it, remember it, interpret it, evaluate it. And only after those processes can you really respond in a sensible and effective way. In the context of a whole programme of consultation skills learning, the educator can put this exercise in to develop the twin skills of open, attentive listening and remembering what has been said. The aim is quite simple. All the participants are going to join together to tell a story by taking turns. The first person is given a token or talking stick. Any small object will do, for example, a small tennis ball or something. The person with that token is asked to begin by saying once upon a time and to say one sentence ending with the phrase and then. At that point, they will throw the token randomly to another member of the group. 
The next speaker has to repeat exactly what the first speaker said without any approximations or paraphrases, and then adds another sentence to their story, ending their contribution with, and then. Then they throw the talking stick or the ball to another random member of the group and so on. The reason for using a random order is this means that everyone has to listen all the time, as they may be the next person to speak. And this is so that everyone in the group is effectively participating and practising their memory all through the exercise. If the speaker just turns to the person next to them, other people only have to listen when they know it's their turn. Ask the listeners in the whole group to listen for any inaccuracies or discrepancies. And if they detect them, they can raise their hands and say the correct phrase. Educators might need to do a few practice runs first so that everybody gets the idea. Then see how many speakers can contribute to the story before memory breaks down. Do the storytelling exercise more than once and ask participants to experiment with different approaches. Do you think you could remember more if you're thinking about what you're going to say yourself? Or if you remain completely open? What about if you form a visual image in your mind of what's being said? Or if you develop an auditory memory? What works for each individual? This kind of memory is actually trainable. I've noticed that experienced GPs typically remember more and far more accurately what has been said than inexperienced clinicians. This follows from developing the skill of paying very close attention to what is being said. At the end, it's worth exploring the importance of really hearing and remembering what is said. William Osler, who was one of the most famous of the modern physicians, said, Listen to the patient. He's telling you the diagnosis. And even in this day and age when we have lots of tests and investigations, a careful history is still by far the most discriminating clinical tool. This can be another opportunity for us all to reflect on the problems that arise if clinicians just use the time when the patient is speaking to plan their own next question rather than to attend to what the patient is really saying. Simple steps to powerful listening too. How can video stop-start help you to hear in three dimensions? The use of attentive listening is a vital skill in all areas of the consultation. It can often go wrong quite near the start of the conversation when anxiety levels can be high. The clinician can easily become preoccupied with asking themselves, will I be able to work out what's going on with this patient? I don't really understand what they're saying, or something like that. As a result, the clinician may be mainly focused on thinking about the right questions to ask next. The result of that can be that the clinician is so busy thinking ahead that they're not listening properly to what the patient is saying right now. This has several potential effects. If the clinician is not really hearing what the patient is saying, they risk missing vital information. Also, of course, it means that follow-up questions are less effective because they don't follow on from what the patient has been saying. The outcome can be inefficient and ineffective information gathering. However, not really hearing what the patient says has other less obvious effects. If the patient picks up that the clinician is not really hearing them, they tend to start repeating themselves. Any repetition in a consultation wastes time. Yet most clinicians are keen to finish consultations in a timely way, ready for the next patient. So why do we waste time on repetition? If a patient feels they're not being heard, their relationship with the clinician is also damaged. This can result in a loss of trust. And further down the line, that may mean that patients don't really trust the management plan that's proposed and then they don't stick to it. Pretty much every word that patient says is important to hear, remember, understand and interpret. Being fully attentive to what the patient is saying allows the clinician a bit of brain space too to notice other things. For example, there may be verbal clues or cues See the chapter called, Can Reading Between the Lines Make for More Accurate Diagnosis? An attentive focus on the patient can also yield a lot of non-verbal information, and that can bring the patient into another whole dimension. A very powerful way to learn to start noticing all the information communicated by a patient is to use a method called Video Stop Start. The clinician and the educator watch a recorded consultation together in very short sections. The clinician is then challenged to repeat the exact words that the patient has said. This can be more difficult than it sounds, especially at first. But when you get the hang of it, rapid improvement is possible and your listening rapidly becomes more powerful. Doing this also helps the clinician to realise how much is being conveyed in each part of the conversation. It's not unusual to hear clinicians ask patients questions 
and then later in the consultation ask the same question again, even to ask questions about information that has already been given in the opening statement. What's more, the value of each sentence can be enriched many times over when you analyse a small chunk of a consultation, because then it's easier to get some practice in making other observations, such as tone of voice, dress, behaviour, eye contact, emotional expressions, and especially hesitations. Paying specific attention to exactly what the patient is saying can yield a great deal of information with very low effort. So here's one example of how really attentive listening can change how we view things. What if a patient begins by saying something like, thank you for agreeing to call me back so quickly. I've got this sore throat and hoarseness. Usually we are a pretty sturdy family. Now it's quite common when a sentence like that has been played for the clinician who's heard it to say something like, the patient's sore throat is making them hoarse and they're pleased to be called back quickly. While this may be true, it's not an exact reproduction of the patient's words. If you can't reproduce the patient's words exactly, it's valuable to replay the same segment of the video until you can do it. This may seem incredibly clunky at first. However, the devil really is in the detail. Let's hear that sentence again from the patient. Thank you for agreeing to call me back so quickly. I've got this sore throat and hoarseness. Usually we're a pretty sturdy family. Now then, it's true that the patient is saying thank you, but we do not yet know whether he's pleased. He may in fact be rather cross about how difficult it was to get a proper face-to-face appointment. Did the clinician actually agree to call the patient back quickly? And if so, is that an invitation to agree with the patient's judgment about the urgency or importance of his problem? Would this opening statement have a different significance if he'd said something else, something like, I'm glad the receptionist let me get a call at short notice? Or, thank goodness people can still get an urgent response from this practice. Or, well, how ill do you actually have to be to get a proper appointment round here? Secondly, what he says about usually we are a pretty sturdy family is a major clue about the significance of his contact with the practice, which could easily be missed if the clinician only listens to the symptoms. Using a very short chunk to analyse also allows us to focus on nonverbal issues. What if the patient is talking very quickly or very slowly? What kind of accent does he have? Is their speech conveying anxiety or anger? What can the speed, tone, accent and emotional quality of the voice tell us? All these matters are very helpful clues that help to unravel the consultation effectively and more quickly. Skills in noting such matters are learnable and they can be improved by using the video stop-start method. Another issue that can be corrected by using this method is illustrated here. So the clinician says, are you a smoker? And the patient says, no, I gave up smoking when I came to live with my daughter. The clinician says, who do you live with? Now, here the clinician only really listened to the information about smoking. Their second question tells the patient that the clinician is not really listening, and that's bad for their relationship. It also wastes time because the patient has already given the information that he lives with his daughter. Working through consultations in this way can really enrich the information that clinicians obtain. This saves time, especially if repetition is avoided. However, the consultation is further enriched by the detail and complexity of the information that can be gleaned from paying careful attention. One clinician described it like this. First time I saw this consultation on video, it was like looking at a photograph of the patient. Having done video stop-start, I'm seeing them in three dimensions now, almost as if I've read a novel or seen a film about them. I understand the patient so much more. It's very well worth having a try with video stop-start to really identify what's going on. To make this more powerful, uh, you can use a video that the clinicians made, one made by the educator, or even one of the simulated videos available. But overall, using a video made by a clinician in training is usually the most productive in a one-to-one situation like a tutorial. In a group setting, it's better to use something that's in the public domain or one of the trainer's videos. Doing video stop-start can be a little bit exposing, and so it's not ideal for large group settings. The way to really maximise the benefit of this is to play maybe the first 60 to 90 seconds of the video. Then ask the clinician to recall as much as possible of what the patient said and to make notes of what the patient said and what they've already noticed in this part of the consultation. 
Then play the video again from the beginning, stopping after every sentence or two that the patient says. This may mean stopping the video every few seconds initially. Try to repeat the exact words the patient says. If the patient says, Thank you so much for agreeing to see me at short notice. I've never had to ring up in the afternoon before. It's not adequate for the clinician to say, The patient is pleased, I can see her quickly. It's not an exact reproduction of the patient's words. Practice until you can really say exactly what the patient just said. In what that particular patient said, there's an important clue about I've never had to ring up in the afternoon. And that gives a more weighty significance to her contact with the practice. And we have to wonder what the significance of that is. Watching the video in 10 to 20 second chunks will also help you realise how much is being conveyed in the early part of the conversation, particularly if it's enriched by detailed observation about the tone of voice, dress, behaviour and so on. What if the patient that we just heard from is a well-dressed office worker, clutching at a tissue and avoiding eye contact? Would it mean something different if she was dressed in pyjamas with a coat thrown over her, untidy and a bit smelly? What if she's talking very quickly or very, very slowly? What could these things tell us? All these matters are very helpful clues that will unravel the meaning of the consultation more effectively and quickly if we take notice of them. After 60 to 90 seconds of the recording, write down again everything you now know about that patient and compare it to what was noted after the first time you watched the first 60 to 90 seconds uninterrupted. Most people find they've learned a great deal more after really paying attention to the details. Simple steps to powerful listening three. Can you spot the skills? This chapter has a focus on helping people to learn to understand what a consultation skill really is, how it's demonstrated in an actual consultation, and to also see how skills can be patchy and some skills might be missing altogether. This process is called skill spotting. Sometimes clinicians who wish to improve their consultations already understand the distinction between what they know about, which is their knowledge, and their know-how, which is their skills. For others, it might not be so easy to understand this. Being asked to improve your skills might be a slightly alien concept if your previous education or training has really concentrated on what we call domainal knowledge. That means knowing that rather than knowing how. For example, knowing that all the treatments of diabetes are at your fingertips and you know what they all are may not mean that you know how to explain a new diagnosis of diabetes in a way that empowers the patient to make the appropriate lifestyle changes. Educators can help clinicians to recognise skills. This means that existing skills are recognised and praised and the need for new skills to be learnt can be highlighted. Sometimes people take their own skills for granted. So skill spotting can also be a way to improve morale by identifying skills that are already in place and enabling recognition of skills that still need to be acquired can also give people hope that they can move in the right direction, particularly if they've got an examination in prospect. The chapters Simple Steps to Powerful Listening 1, Storytelling for Attention and Memory, and 2, How Can Video Stop Start Help You Hear in Three Dimensions, really focus largely on attending to what the patient is saying. But in this chapter, the focus is on what the clinician is saying or doing. In other words, the focus is on the clinician's skills. This approach works by encouraging participants to watch a video and observe closely the skills which are present and identify them clearly. Being able to name a skill or a skill set, for example, building initial rapport or summarising at the end of one line of inquiry or breaking good news, can help raise awareness of what new skills need to be acquired. This can help you to change your unknown unknowns into known unknowns. And if you have a known unknown, you can go off and make it into something that you do know about so that it's not unknown anymore. This is another way of saying that your unconscious incompetence needs to be changed to conscious incompetence, which is a trigger to new learning. It's usually useful to use a video that somebody has prepared beforehand for this, and it could be a video of an educator working. In a large group session, it's helpful to use one of the publicly available videos or perhaps the video of the educator themselves. 
Begin by checking how confident you are that you can identify skills in the consultation. What's it like when you see the list of possible skills to be used, for example, in a Calgary Cambridge guide which contains 71 skills? Very commonly, people feel really overwhelmed by this or a bit intimidated. People feel that it's unrealistic to have 71 skills used in every consultation. It's good to have the Calgary Cambridge Skills Guide available for everybody to consult. And there's a copy of this available in the resources in this module. However, the guide is a curriculum. It's not an assessment tool. It identifies the possible skills you might select from, and it gives an indication of the range and scope of the skills that you might want to learn. Not every consultation requires every single one of the skills. It's important at this point, I would say, to remember that much of the information about learning consultation skills is still contained in books, and it's useful to have a textbook to inform your learning. There's an interesting chapter in the module TALC Effective Methods for Teaching Consultation Skills called Is It Cheating to Look Things Up? An Open Book Technique for Speeding Up Learning, which talks in more detail about how to use textbooks effectively. When a consultation has been selected for viewing, it's going to be used so that people can identify the skills that the clinician is using in each section. It's usually best to stop the video at short intervals so that all the skills can be identified. If you find yourself saying things like, oh, there's lots of active listening skills here, then really focus down and drill down those skills into specific examples. Do you really understand what active listening skills are? Are we talking about reflecting back, echoing or summarising? Identify any passive listening skills, such as open body language, people saying, mm-hmm, looking interested and so on. It's worth considering if you can identify which section of the consultation are you watching. Is this in the opening? Are we gathering information? Has the consultation already moved on to explanation planning? Or are we now closing the consultation? Are the skills being observed about building the relationship? Or are they structuring and signposting skills? This can be a way to do two things. Firstly, if the video shows the conversation looping between information gathering explanations and agenda gathering, agenda setting, it can sort of highlight a lack of structure. But also looking out for those structuring and signposting skills can help to raise awareness of how to keep the consultation flowing smoothly. If you're watching an educator's video, it can sometimes be especially useful to identify things which are not happening. For example, generally educators listen for longer and more intently. There is often a lot less repetition And effective consultations are structured without wasting a lot of time saying things like, may I ask you some more questions? Most patients expect to be asked questions. It's only really necessary to introduce that if you want to start asking very embarrassing or difficult questions when it might be necessary to simply say, I need some information that some people find embarrassing. Can I ask you, for example, and then take a sexual history or something similar? If possible, educators can use specific skilled consultations to demonstrate what is needed. And it's worth either keeping consultations with the permission of the patient or using some of the publicly available ones. This skill spotting approach can also be used when educators and learners do joint educator and clinician consultations. In a live joint consultation, there are so many skills to consider, it can be difficult to follow them all. Sometimes it's better to ask the person observing to focus on one or two key skills. So, for example, notice when and how the clinician uses summarising, or notice what the educator does when picking up clues and cues, or maybe focusing on the skills of building the clinician-patient relationship. Notice any relationship building, especially empathic comments. It's useful for the observer to make notes of these for discussion afterwards. When you really sit down and focus on the skills, what do you learn? Some skills are easier to spot than others. Some skills might be missing. Which skills does the clinician or the observer think they need to focus on developing next? Developing skills bit by bit, one at a time, is a far more effective way than trying to improve everything all at once. Can reading between the lines make for a more accurate diagnosis? We can learn so much from listening attentively to what patients say and remembering it. We can also learn a lot when we listen attentively to things patients only half say, things they hesitate to pursue, and from contextual and emotional information conveyed in words, 
in hesitations and in throwaway remarks, things which are actually not fully expressed. These are often termed cues, meaning there are hints that there is more to be said. In a play, a cue is the prompt that tells the actor that they should say their next lines. But in a consultation, we do not respond to cues like an actor by saying the lines we've already learned. Instead, we need to respond specifically to what the patient has said or hinted at so that the patient knows we've noticed, so that we can follow up relevant lines of inquiry. I think it's often more helpful to think of these hints as clues rather than cues, signalling that there is more to be said and that the full picture has not been revealed so far. While this is akin to reading between the lines, when consulting with a patient, it's usually better to follow up a clue with some further inquiries rather than just guessing at what the patient might mean. This can lead to inaccurate ideas. When patients talk, they convey vast amounts of information and many clues. So how is the clinician to respond to this whole set of complex clues? I'm going to read you an example of something a patient might say together with a bit of description of the patient with some thoughts about the clues as well as we go along. The patient is neatly and cleanly dressed with an elaborate hairstyle and shiny shoes. Now this contextual clues says that they're probably looking after themselves pretty well, at least in some respects. Their speech is rather fast and they sit upright, clutching a bag very tightly on their lap. Perhaps this indicates a degree of anxiety. The patient says, I'm not sleeping. There's a clue. Not sleeping is often a sign of distress or depression. Since all this started, clue. Since what started? And now it's affecting me at work. Another clue. What is it? What work? And how is work being affected? Because I'm so tired, I'm irritable with everyone. Clue. Who is everyone? And I'm wondering if you could write me a letter for the housing. Another clue. It's something to do with their home, perhaps. Some kind of action is also seeming to be expected from the clinician, so that the housing can get me a move away from my horrible neighbour. Clue. What kind of horrible? Is worry about the neighbour disturbing sleep, or is it something else? The patient only says about 50 words in that particular example, but there are at least eight verbal and non-verbal clues slash cues. Is the clinician supposed to pick up every one of those? Won't that approach end up taking ages? Perhaps it's better to ignore all the cues and stick with writing a letter to the housing. Research studies of consultations do show that many clues are ignored by clinicians who show low levels of awareness of clues and are particularly unaware of those which concern the need for emotional understanding and support. But if we don't understand the patient's problem more, we cannot be sure that a letter to the housing is the best plan. Equally, picking up on every single clue does seem a tad clunky. It has been shown that clues can be addressed without lengthening consultation times. For example, early expressions of empathy and understanding can even shorten some consultations. In one research study, when clinicians reacted proactively to a list of questions brought by oncology patients, and a list is one kind of clue or cue, this actually made consultations shorter. There's a useful section on this whole set of information in the chapter on information gathering and skills for communicating with patients. So if we're going to deal with cues and clues, we need a strategy. A simple instruction to say pick up cues isn't really helpful, is it? And might not be enough. Now there are different ways to pick up on the important but incomplete information coming from the patient in the form of cues or clues. And these three approaches are these. You can pick up the cue, you can park the clue mentally and then come back to it later, or you can simply put the clue into the whole picture. In the example that I gave you already in this podcast, that might mean picking up the clue about the neighbour using the active listening skill of reflecting back and saying, you mentioned your horrible neighbour? Some clues might be parked for later and come back to them using active listening skills again, but paraphrasing this time. You mentioned being affected at home and at work. Can you tell me more about that? Sometimes it's quite enough to put the clues into the whole picture using a summarising skill. Overall, this difficult situation is having a really big impact on your well-being. Learning which clues to pick up, which to park and which to put in the whole picture is not easy, actually. Sifting through what a patient is saying means listening very attentively, remembering and interpreting what is being said and only then deciding how to respond. 
see the other chapters on Simple Steps to Powerful Listening in the Skills for Effective Information Gathering module. There are, however, huge rewards for the effective use of clues and cues. Attention to clues can help the clinician focus in on what's really happening and can help clinicians to avoid missing important pieces of information, information that the patient might be hesitant to disclose. And responding to clues is a crucial part of building an effective, trusting relationship. If you don't have that, it's very hard to get an effective management plan. Quite often, important clinical information is discovered when clues are followed up. Responding to cues about emotional issues with appropriate understanding and empathy actually tends to shorten consultation overall. If patients' clues are not picked up, they tend to repeat themselves over and over again until the underlying feelings are acknowledged. Repetition waste time in consultations. So how can we practice picking up clues and cues? Have you first begun to reflect on any examples of where you have picked up a clue and found it useful? Do you have any worries or concerns about picking up too many clues? Will the consultation become too long or too complicated? The educator working with the clinician can use this kind of discussion to pick up any clues from the clinician or learner. They can actually demonstrate the usefulness of picking up clues in this kind of way. Some inexperienced clinicians feel that Picking up clues could be like opening a can of worms that will take ages to deal with. And this concern is understandable, especially if your skills in handling distress are not yet fully developed. Clinicians can plan to work on that aspect of their skills as well. Use the module Talc Skills for Building Effective Relationships and the Talc module Complex Skills for More Tricky Situations. There are two aspects of the skills of attending to clues which you need to learn about. Firstly, how to identify cues and clues in the first place, and secondly, how to respond to them. Again, it can be helpful to start with a video and really simply notice any clues or cues in the consultation, forgetting about the clinical content for now. The educator could begin by stopping the video as soon as the patient has sat down and said hello, or in a telephone consultation as soon as the patient has introduced themselves and made their opening statement. Reflect on what clues are already present. There'll always be some demographic information about where the patient lives, their age and so on. Some non-verbal information, including posture, tone of voice and address. Calling from a landline rather than a mobile can be a subtle clue that may be put in the whole picture for later on. Continue to watch or listen to the call in sections and stop the recording every time you notice a clue or a cue. Your educator can also stop the video if they notice clues. The yield of information can be astonishing. A clinician has remarked that this feels like seeing a patient in 3D rather than 2D. The other way of practising picking up a cue is to just read a transcription of something that the patient says and then make a note on there of things that you notice. Here's an example. You telephone a patient on a landline and the address is on one of the poorer areas of the practice in a small terraced house. You happen to have done a visit there a few weeks ago and noticed that it's rather run down and not very well decorated. Mrs T who lives there is aged 85 and no one else is living at the address. You can see that from the computer system. She last saw the doctor a year ago though for a travel vaccination before visiting her daughter who lives in Thailand. She speaks in a wavering voice and says, Is that the doctor at last? I had such trouble getting through. Will you come and see me? I can't get out in this cold, wet weather. I'm scared of falling over now. My legs won't carry me properly. I had to go back to bed because my leg is so sore and red. That's about 50 words. And there's a lot of information conveyed there, including a lot of non-verbal communication. So see if you can write down all the clues and cues that are in there. See if you decide which ones you would pick up, which ones you might park or which ones you'd put in the whole clinical picture. Another way to practice this is to do a skills rehearsal. Now, this is not a role play because the people in the skills rehearsal are going to be themselves and talk about an issue that concerns them. So divide into listeners, speakers and observers in a group or just listeners and speakers if you're working one to one. The listener will open the conversation by saying something like, tell me about a difficult problem you want to talk about. This could be a personal problem or it could even be a difficult consultation that they've recently experienced. The speaker's task 
is to talk about what is currently bothering them, anything that they're willing to discuss either with their trainer or in a small group. Have a conversation and the observer can watch out for clues and cues. If the observer has a suitable checklist and there's one in the written resources that go with this chapter, they can use that to help them. If you observe a clue as an observer or as a listener, make a little note in the relevant column and put a tick if you think a clue was missed. Putting a word or two down to remind you will also help. After the conversation, think about which clues were noted by the listener and did the observer pick up any clues that the listener missed? Do they agree about what was the clue? It's worthwhile in a group repeating the exercise so that every person gets to be speaker, listener and observer. Think about the clues and how they were picked up. How did the listener respond? What did they do with that clue? Ask the speaker to comment on what it felt like when a clue was noted and acted upon. And ask the speaker to comment on actions from the listener that told them that the listener had indeed picked up on the important clues. Making some notes is a useful way of reinforcing this learning. What difference do patients' thoughts, concerns and hopes really make? The skills needed to elicit patients' ideas, concerns and expectations have been widely recognised as necessary for examinations and sometimes are seen as something for consultations in primary care rather than in hospitals, although I don't think that's true. The whole concept of ideas, concerns and expectations has also become something of a cliched expression of something that seems to be done to the patient. Sometimes in problem case discussions, clinicians even say things like, well, I iced the patient, but I didn't get anywhere. But patients are not like cakes and they can't be iced. The process of appreciating the patient's own perspective isn't something that you do to a passive patient, but rather a very active process of dialogue between a patient and a clinician who is genuinely curious and interested in how the patient sees things from their own point of view. It is a way for the clinician to get a fresh perspective and to understand how a situation is affecting the specific individual they're working with. I hope in this podcast that you'll see that it's so much more than this. Sometimes in recorded consultations, the conversation with the patient goes a bit like this. Patient. Oh, what's next? Doctor. Have you got any ideas about what's causing the problem? No, says the patient. You're the doctor or the nurse or the other clinician. Have you got any worries about this? Patient says, no. Clinician says, what do you think we ought to be doing about this? Or even worse, what do you expect me to do about this? And the patient says, don't know, that's why I'm asking you. As a result, an experienced clinician sometimes think that discovering the thoughts and concerns of their patient is done for purely theoretical reasons, that it won't help their clinical assessment and is generally a waste of time. Such clinicians will only concern themselves with the patient's perspective when they're being observed or during an examination. However, experienced clinicians take a very different approach when they think about the issue of the patient's own thoughts. Firstly, in almost all situations, understanding where the patient is coming from is useful in the clinical assessment, and it's pretty much vital for successful explanations and for effective care planning with the patient. Experienced clinicians understand that the skills of eliciting a patient's thoughts, beliefs, concerns and their hopes for the consultation are not about asking closed questions. Instead of using a closed question such as, are you worried about this, which could be answered with one word, experienced clinicians use open directed questions to explore the patient's point of view. They follow this up by picking up clues and cues in what is communicated. And you can read more about this in the chapter called can reading between the lines make for more accurate diagnosis? This approach need not be time consuming and in fact often saves time in the end because it helps the clinician to focus on the key issues. What is meant by the term an open directed question? Clinicians will be familiar with closed questions that can only be answered with one word. An example might be, have you ever seen blood in your urine? The answer is usually yes or no. Asking a patient, do you have any ideas about what is causing this? can be answered again with a single word like no or dunno. An open direct question leaves the type of response open, that means it can't be answered with one word, like a closed question, but it also directs the patient's attention to a particular aspect of the issue at hand. So asking a question like, what aspect of all this has concerned or worried you the most, cannot be answered in one word, and will enable the clinician to start to explore 
what really matters to the patient about their current situation. Similarly, an open directed question such as, well, what thoughts have you been having about all this? invites a detailed comment and is likely to enable a conversation about the patient's ideas. Sometimes statements rather than questions yield more information. For example, I have a few thoughts about how we might proceed here. I'm also very interested to know what thoughts you've been having about this. Eliciting a patient's initial thoughts is not the end of the matter. The clinician must pick up and respond to the patient's answer. How does this help? Here are some examples to consider. If the patient says, well, I thought this might be a cancer, that is useful information and it may illuminate the symptoms in a different light. In an older person who's a heavy smoker with a cough, the clinician might respond with, well, a cancer is a realistic possibility, followed by an exploration of what such a diagnosis might mean to the patient or what they might want to do next about it. But if the person concerned about lung cancer is a 25-year-old non-smoking female athlete, the clinician might respond differently and explore further, asking, how did you come to be concerned about cancer just now? Because on the face of it, it's not a very realistic concern for that person. This how question is less threatening than why do you think you have cancer? It may reveal the results of a Google search or the fact that a neighbour or relative has similar symptoms and has been diagnosed with cancer recently. This is important information. The same kind of principles apply when considering worries and hopes. Asking, do you have any worries about this, is a closed question. Some patients will automatically answer no to this question because they do not see themselves as worriers. After all, they may see worriers as not rational, wasting clinicians' time on trivialities, or as people who are not able to cope with their situation, unlike themselves. So no wonder asking about worry sometimes leads to denial. Far better to use another open-directed question such as what concerns do you have about this, which cannot be answered in a single word. The use of the term concern is powerful and has been shown to be seen as more natural, raising rational matters that most sensible adults would address. For other patients, asking what has been worrying you the most about this may be a productive open-directed question too. Asking a patient to rank their worries or concerns quietly implies that it's normal and inevitable that they will have worries or concerns. And that is true when most people are ill or trying to manage worrying symptoms. This normalises the clinician's interest in the patient's perspective, how they see things from their own point of view. Clinicians often get stuck when they ask about hopes or expectations. If you ask the question, what were you expecting me to do about it? I think it's really hard to make that sound anything less than dismissive or uncaring, at least in English. It's more effective to make inquiries along the lines of, what were you thinking about how we might deal with this? Or, what were you hoping for from this consultation today? Again, the patient's response needs to be attended to carefully. The skill is not in asking the question, but in understanding and exploring the answers. If a patient's answer is, well, you know, that is not a successful exploration of their thoughts, although there is a hint of something there. Finding out what that actually is needs further exploration. Use facilitating phrases such as, go on, or pick up clues and cues from the patient to develop a fuller understanding. See also, talc skills for effective information gathering. How can avoiding questions yield more information? Finally, clinicians should remember that sometimes no means yes. If asked about concerns, the patient may reply they are not particularly concerned. This means they have a concern that has not been voiced. Try an encouraging go on or echo back by saying something like not particularly, as this is likely to reveal significant information. Similarly, if a patient says, are you okay with the idea of taking tablets permanently? And the patient answers, well, yes, in a hesitant way. That's not really a yes. It's really a no. And until the patient says yes wholeheartedly, you've still got a no. There's a strong clue there that more exploration is needed. Understanding thoughts, hopes and concerns and even expectations is often seen as something to get done in the information gathering part of the consultation. Remember, though, that the same skills are necessary throughout the consultation. 
During and after explanations, the same principles apply. If you've explained a diagnosis to a patient, pause. Ask them, what thoughts do you have now? Or, what concerns does that explanation leave you with? Or, thinking about their expectations, I know you were hoping we might do one particular thing. Now that I've explained my reasoning and what I think's going on, what are your thoughts about doing something different instead? Roger Neighbour, in his book, The Inner Consultation, describes the concept of patient frameworks, which can really further help in understanding the patient's point of view, especially when you want to work with the patient's perspective in explanations and planning care. Apart from very specific issues such as, I hate taking tablets, Neighbour identifies some general attitudes which can inform patients' perspectives, and these are well worth exploring to inform management plans later on. These approaches could mean that some people prefer an active role in treatment or other people prefer a more passive role. Some people might prefer cautious approaches compared to being willing to experiment or have more interventionist types of treatment. Some people want to avoid surgery, whereas other people might want to get it over with. Eliciting the patient's perspective will give many clues about these kinds of orientations and then they can be used to inform management plans and these are much more likely to be acceptable to patients and therefore much more likely to be carried out. A good motivation to explore thoughts, ideas and hopes is that it can lead to a really nuanced understanding of each patient as an individual. When patients share their own responses and thoughts, it's sometimes illuminating. It's always interesting and occasionally can result in jaw-dropping revelations. This makes each patient's story individual and therefore interesting rather than an example of a type. A man who comes with a sore throat might not seem that fascinating, but a man with a sore throat who's worried he got AIDS by sharing an ice cream with a stranger in a nightclub is an interesting problem and actually raises some clinically important questions as well. Learning about the patient's story and their perspective can benefit clinicians as well as patients. When each patient is seen to be unique and interesting, clinicians can respond in more human and creative ways. Interesting work is more fun, isn't it? It's less stressful and less tiring. If we get alongside patients and their concerns, collaborative working becomes easier and we have fewer stressful conflicts with patients. There's a useful summary of the evidence and skills about this in Skills for Communicating with Patients, and I think it's well worth reading the chapter in Roger Neighbour as well. How do we come to practice this, though? And where do our initial attitudes come from? To be honest, a lot of secondary care practice must come in for some criticism here. It inclines to medical models and protocol-driven approaches that come in the lively variation of individual patients tends to get leached out a bit. In secondary care, patients can feel like bags on a conveyor belt rather than human beings. So explore what the patient's perspective means to you as an individual or to the clinicians you'll work with. Think about the difference between a disease state, such as the signs and symptoms associated with the disease, for example, the clinical features of COPD, and what we call the illness state, which is what that disease is experienced like for the patient. Different patients will have different experiences and different concerns and expectations about the same disease. For example, think about something straightforward like a fractured collarbone. For a circus performer, this might presage a disastrous period of complete unemployment and lack of income. But for a shy teenager, it might mean a welcome respite for team sports. For a healthy man who retired weekly, it might just be a brief inconvenience. Try and think what experiences you've already had in trying to understand where patients have come from before and try and avoid closed questions. A specific skills rehearsal can help to reinforce new skills. Either choose a case that you've been looking at on a recorded consultation or use one of the resources in the written materials where there are scenarios that can be used to practice this. Using an effective skills rehearsal is a good way forwards. Firstly, consider how to make the skills rehearsal effective by having a scenario well prepared. The clinician can start the conversation using a summary of information, going on to elicit more detail about the patient's own perspective. The person playing the patient can act using the information in the scenario and the observer can use a checklist to look at the skills in question. 
it's worthwhile changing roles so that everybody gets to try being a patient, a clinician and an observer. Then reflect on how the patient's perspective helps the clinician. It might improve diagnostic accuracy, assist in choosing a management plan or in narrowing down the realistic options for treatment. What would happen if the patient's perspective is not taken into account? This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.